1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Given how important relationships are for getting absolutely anything done, it shouldn't surprise any of us that trust is sort of one of the key factors in success. However, You know, a lot of people are talking about how important trust is, and I find a lot of executives use the word trust and say trust is important, but I don't think we know enough about how to actually build trust, trust with teams, trust with coworkers, and even trust with clients. So today, I want to talk to yet another expert in trust, and I want to hear about the four facets that he believes are really critical for trust and how do we do each of them more effectively. So my guest today is Mark Given. Mark is a philosopher and teacher and the founder of the Trust-Based Philosophy. He's also the author of the Trust-Based Philosophy books. There are four of them, um, Trust-Based Leadership, Trust-Based Networking, Trust-Based Selling, Trust-Based Success, and we're going to talk about the leadership one for this one. He's authored other books as well, so there's a grand total of eight in total, and he speaks and teaches in companies, organizations, associations, colleges, profit and nonprofit sales organizations, service organizations in the U.S. and around the world. He's recognized as an authority on leadership, sales, and customer service, and he's best known as the relationship expert. His blog, Mark's Minute, is read by thousands of people across the world every Wednesday morning. So, um, and I guess I should also say you can't know Mark without knowing how grateful he is for his lovely family, for his wife and his five terrific kids, their spouses, and the entire eight set of grandchildren, I think, around the planet. So, Mark, welcome to the show.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm delighted to have you. You know, I often don't mention for people, you know, in their last line of their bio, they'll say something about wife or family or where they live. And I often don't mention it. But for you, I do. And one of the things that struck me is when you open the first bit of Trust-Based Leadership, there I have a photo of you and your charming wife getting married on your wedding day. That's a statement (laughs) about how important the family is to you. So I couldn't help but mention it because I saw that in the book.
2: Well, thank you. You know, I spend my, my life's work out in the, in the business world or in the educational world or in, in all these areas where I'm trying to help companies and organizations, associations, and so forth understand the importance of more than just the concept of trust, but the science of trust. But the reality of it is... When things are messed up at home, and when you don't have trust in your own home, how in the world can you go teach it to other people when in the most important area of your life, it's messed up? So that's why that picture is there, and in and, and others, it's of my wife and then my family, because it goes way back to the beginning of when I was just a, a young man trying to understand the importance of this, imprin- this important principle, which is not just a concept,
1: Okay. All right. I believe you, though I think trust at home and trust in the corporate world take slightly different forms. So is this why you got so excited about the topic on trust? Because you're trying to figure out how to do it in your private life? Is that what got you going on this topic?
2: well here's what's interesting I found it it, it for me it related to both um, in my younger life after college I uh, started a retail company which over the next twenty years of my life grew to a, a forty so from one little location to forty seven locations and and I really did discover that uh that my employees, my staff, those that I associated with needed to have levels of trust with me as a, as a leader, right? That is one mm-hmm. that they could actually follow. But I also found that uh, it related to my family life as well, that even though the principles of, of how you do it may be somewhat different, they are related. If, if I can't if I'm, not, if I'm not a trustworthy person in the corporate world, uh, it's difficult for me to be a trustworthy person at home and vice versa. So so that's where my philosophy really goes is that we are either a trustworthy person. We either build and maintain and understand the science of building, maintaining trust. In our lives, it's not something that's just I can do it here and not there. It, it, it really transcends our life.
1: Yeah, that part I agree with you. I think it's, well, we'll get into it later. Let's stay with your philosophy about trust. So you have this interesting idea that there are four facets to trust. What are those? And kind of explain to the four to us.
2: Sure, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of it. So, what I discovered as I was uh, as a leader in the corporate world, as a leader in trying to be in my family, and as a leader in my community, uh, and in the other places that I was trying to function, that that although I'd been taught, we all are taught the importance of trust. So I think we know that. That's a, probably a common sense thing that we've got to be. We we know when we trust people. We can know when we can see, and we we can name people that we trust. But I also found that it was only taught to me basically as a concept. So as I went really studying it in my mind and then studying it be a way beyond that, I discovered that there really are four facets of trust. So here's what they are. There is a grand opening. Uh, we've all been taught we only have one opportunity to make a first impression. And that's true. There's science behind that now to indicate how long we really have for people to form that opinion before we ever even get to speak. So There is a grand opening facet to building trust if people – have this impression that they cannot trust us, then it's hard to move forward. So we, we have this cognitive bias and that's a whole different science, but that would lead us down a path to say, hey, I don't." there's something about them I can't trust. And, it, and it, it stagnates our movement forward. So the grand opening can be good or bad, that's the first facet. The second facet of trust, uh, the science behind trust, as we believe, is what we, we recall called the rapport stage. That's asking more questions so that you can learn more about the individuals that you're trying to associate with or, or for them to associate with you, whether it be in business or sales or, or uh, as, a, as a leader, right, instead of a manager or even as a manager. So the second facet is the rapport building stage. The third facet of trust is the uh, maintenance phase. In other words, once we have established some, some level of trust, then how do we maintain that? How, we, how do we grow that? In a business world, it's how do we get repeat and referral business? in an, In a leadership position it 's how can I get people to uh, to follow me right to to be inspired by the things we 're trying to accomplish so it 's the maintenance facet and then the last facet is the apology facet because we all. Have times when we mess up, so there is a science, and there is a proper way for for everyone companies individuals to actually go through the, the proper form of, of apology when we when we mess it up so so I really believe with all my heart and soul, and I believe the science proves it that science that trust is not just a concept, there are individual elements within trust that we need to focus on, and we call them the force for facets of trust. If we understand them, if we develop them, then we can be really successful in building, maintaining, and even repairing trust.
1: Okay. All right. So I want to take each one of those, and I want to start with a grand opening. You know, this notion that we make a first impression, and you gave a teaser. You said science tells us how long it is. How long does it take? I mean, how quickly are those first impressions formed? (laughs)
2: This is really crazy, and and when I'm out speaking and and working with organizations or companies, you know, m- most people say, "Well, yeah, we agree." There's only one opportunity to make a first impression, but they have no idea what that is. But the science now shows Harvard did studies, NYU did studies, there there are other there are other groups out there that have invested in. Uh, and the ability to wire people 's brains and determine how quickly they form an opinion and here 's what 's scary about that the the uh, end result the one that I quote the most is the Harvards because they were studying influence for nearly fifteen years there 's a wonderful TED talk on that um, uh, about this uh, area of influence which touch, touches on trust, and they determined that we we form that opinion in fifty milliseconds so that when we get, when we observe somebody for the first time we use this tough word today they call profiling but it, it, if we use that profiling which i believe that most of your listeners would know what that is we look at them we form an opinion and as as they look at us they're also forming an opinion so 50 milliseconds our brain decides are we competent are we caring and they want to associate with us if they believe that we have both, both competence and caring, but we function by by uh, stressing too much attention on the competence part, when what most people are seeking are is is that person a, a good person? Will they right. you know? Will they uh, will they harm me in some way? Not in an intellectual way, but a physical way. So so, uh, bottom line is. Fifty milliseconds is what Harvard says. Although some of the other scientists say it's a little bit shorter, right? Fifty milliseconds is ridiculous. I mean, in less than a blink of an eye, people form an opinion as we do about others, and that's before we even get to say anything. So that's that's why the grand opening is really so critically important. Because if it doesn't scare us in that much time, it, it probably should. We need to be really considering how that uh, is a is a positive or a negative. As we as we get out into the world,
1: fifty milliseconds, Mark. I was knew it was fast. Fifty milliseconds. I hadn't heard that data. That's incredible. What's interesting about that is that impression is formed before our cognitive brain has a chance to actually think. So that's right. It, it can't be. That impression cannot be controlled from cognitive rational. It's just
2: no, an and and you know the reality of it is we all like to be right. So the science of yeah. it shows that whatever opinion that our brain tells us we believe, then we mm-hmm. go to work trying to prove that we're right because okay. we like to be okay. right. So if that first impression is not good, then we actually go to work watching and listening and appearing, and uh, you know in in a in a in a place at a times to prove that we're right. In other words, yeah, they can't be trusted. And and if we believe the, the other, which is what we want, hey, that's a person that I think that I could associate with or I could do business with or I would at least want to have some kind of uh, you know conversation with even, uh, then our brain goes to work proving that we're right on that too. So, so in other words, it's just critically important that we form the right opinion as we get out in the world and, and are just observed. We haven't even had a chance to talk yet. You know, <laughs> this is long before or the the, uh, the hello this is the, yeah, right. just the visual appearance it 's crazy.
1: Okay, so just a visual appearance. So that means, you know, how I look, the pleasantness on my face, um, all of those kind of just general qualities that I can form in a split second of an opinion. And you said earlier about cognitive bias. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that one. And you were just mentioning this notion of confirmation bias, meaning I look for evidence that supports the conclusion I've already drawn. I don't want to go into that, but I want to say that if you're interested in knowing more about it, just Google decision biases or cognitive biases. You'll find that there's at sixty three biases that are well documented <laughs> in how we That's right. you know, make decisions. That's not about rational thinking. Okay, so do you have advice for people trying to figure out how to do this grand opening in this fifty millisecond first impression um, in the best possible yeah, way?
2: I, yeah, I mean obviously we, we need if if we're if we're wise and we're uh, purposeful, uh, we will will really consider what our um, uh, what our intent is as we go out into the world, whether it be business or personal or wherever it is. That you know, our body language, our facial expressions, um, the, the way we dress, uh, the way we look. You know, we all are individual people, and we have a right to choose. And, and certainly, I'm not in any way trying to take that away from people, but. <laughs> Excuse me at the same time um people are forming opinions on us we also teach um an important principle that once you get past that initial look the the second part that we teach in the grand opening is what we call the the, the trying to get uh, Individuals to move from a two-step greeting to a three-step greeting, which is a high I'm. We we tend to have all been taught to make that initial vocal greeting all about ourselves. You know, it's nice to see you, uh, I'm, and then so often we walk away from that introduction. We haven't even really remembered. We don't remember the name of the person we just met. And what we've learned in in our studies is that uh, if we can move people from a two-step greeting to a three-step greeting, which is about the other individual, so. It's a salutation using the word you, so it's nice to see you today, or you could say it, it, it's, uh, it's good to have you here today. Um, but then you would say thank you. So it would be two yous. It would be something about the salutation with them, the word you, and then a thank you. There's always a reason to thank somebody for their time or their, um, you know, the opportunity. And then you introduce yourself. So what we've learned is moving people from a two-step greeting to a three-step greeting, uh, it makes that introduction not in, not about yourself but about the other individual. And it's, it's reflective in the way that people appreciate that. They just they subliminally accept it better as it's a more trustworthy type, it's a more trusting, I guess is a better word, type of introduction, because instead of making the introduction about me, myself, I've really made it about them, and by using that word you twice, and they don't even recognize it most of the time. And I guess the bonus is that uh, I've learned after thousands and thousands and thousands of times of using a three-step greeting instead of a two-step greeting, I do a better job. I'm better at remembering their name and then having an opportunity to write it down where it used to be before I knew this, that I would often um, struggle trying to remember what was their name. And, um... And I wanted to remember their names. So uh, anyway, the, the, the first initial impression, which is 50 milliseconds, is critical. But then we try to move people from a two-step greeting to a three-step greeting, which also is a nice anchor. It's a wonderful anchor to build a better foundation of trust just in the grand opening. It makes you more likable, makes you more um, the kind of person that people want to associate with.
1: Great. All right. So just to repeat that two-step greeting, um, I know I'm very guilty of just using that. So I walk up to somebody and say, hello, I'm Wanda. And what you would want to move me to is to say, hello, Mark. It's good to see you today, and thank you for taking time to talk with me. So I use the word you in two sentences. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's a simple one. Sounds simple, doesn't it? It, it it's does so sound simple,
2: simple. It's, it's it it's so simple that it takes a while to practice it so that it feels more comfortable because we've done the two step grading our whole lives um whether you're young or old and what happens is you you have to rethink this process but it 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 absolutely is a... It's simple, but it's not simplistic. In other words, it's not something you just change over to in an hour. It really takes some time to think through this, but it actually makes you more likable. And we've seen it over and over and over to know that it's actually true.
1: That's interesting. I find too many times people are not very good at even giving me their names. So, you know, I can struggle (laughs) to get that part going. All right. So that's the grand opening. There's the 50 millisecond sort of visual pre-thinking, pre-analysis. And then there's the three-step versus the two-step greeting. Let's move on to this whole notion about building rapport. And you said it's about asking questions so that we learn more. Can you ask too many questions? Can you ask them in a wrong way and that I send people away?
2: Well, I, I suppose you can. I mean, uh, you know, I I I'm gonna assume that uh that we would use some common sense and the questions would that we would ask. And so we try to teach um <clears throat> we try to teach people that there's really four um four areas that people will normally feel comfortable answering questions in, and it's not too probing. So uh, right. we use a concept called Ford. In other words, if you if in an introduction stage when you're really trying to get to know somebody, it, you might feel comfortable asking somebody about their family. Now, that may not be a comfortable question for you, and so you wouldn't ask that question. But it, typically what happens is when you ask somebody about their family, they generally, or their family circumstances, ask in the right way, and the right appropriateness, when it feels like the right question, you 'll get some response um, not that 's none of your business response you 'll actually get a response that's that people will tell you about their family the mm-hmm. o it stands for occupation so for many people, occupation is a better place to start they 're not in order so uh, mm-hmm. so if you ask somebody about what they do or what they did, uh, people are very tend to be very open they love to talk about their, their field of expertise and so if you ask them that they'll answer that question. The R stands for recreation or what they like to do, uh, or what they do, you know, for fun or for enjoyment. People are very open. Most of the time, about about sharing uh, what they like to do. More, you know, it, it might be work, but it also might be, it could be anything else. And then the fourth one is really the most complicated. I find you have to have a little deeper conversation before you go to the D, which is dreams. Where do you see yourself, you know, at some future point? Or or you know you could relate that back to a family, or even your occupation. You can relate dreams back to even recreation. So, so we teach that principle a lot—that Ford principle—that as you're trying to uh, get in the rapport stage, uh, what you what you're really trying to accomplish is to learn more about people. Um, Dale Carnegie said way back, he may have even written this in How to Win Friends and Influence People. I don't, I, I'm not 100% sure on that. But I remember he said that when dealing with people, remember that you're not dealing with creatures of logic, but creatures of emotion. So the rapport-building mm-hmm. stage is really trying to not manipulate, but to sincerely Be interested in the other individual. It's amazing how much you can learn in just a few minutes about somebody in in those different areas if you just ask kind questions. And then when you ask those questions and you learn the information, you're building rapport. And when you make that conversation about them, they sure appreciate it more. So from a trust-building stage to the rapport-building stage, it's about asking questions and talking less.
1: Okay, I remember a senior executive in one of my financial services companies I've quoted him so many times on this one he said look it's not all just about business I will learn more about somebody in two minutes of hearing them talk about anything they're passionate about than I'll ever learn in a two hour presentation on strategy and by the way that is a- the former counts more
2: yeah Oops. I totally agree people are emotional and so when you're, when we're talking about building maintaining and and developing trust uh the best way to do that is to make those conversations about them not about you they're interested in talking about what's very important to them which is them and so yeah uh, and then the key would be to remember it so that you you yeah. know you have a way to actually uh To, If necessary, you would write that information or remember that information in some way so that when you have future conversations, you know what to talk about. And that's what the rapport building stage is really all about. That's why this facet is so critical because it's how you really go from just the beginning stages of, of this greeting onto building some kind of foundation of trust and you build it with rapport, listening more, asking great questions, not talking so much.
1: All right. Family else. I love it. Ford in no particular order, family, occupation, recreation, and dreams. And I'll give you my favorite question I've been using coming straight from the 36 questions to fall in love for anybody who's interested. And that is tell me one thing you've always wanted to do in your life and you've never done. It's something that's that's even a
2: dreams question.
1: Yeah, that's even a dreams
2: question. I bet you get a really good response from that.
1: Great responses, and I have been using it coming and going, so I give full credit to the original source. All right, Mark, so let's move on to the third facet, facet, which is the maintenance phase, where I'm really trying to grow the level of trust. What's key there?
2: Sure. The key to the maintenance phase is understanding that the world and people love givers and we shun takers. And so when you associate with people that just take and take and take and take and take it's all about me it's all about me we, we you know it, it's not very much fun to be around people we don't really want to associate or and we don't have much trust in in those kind of people so the maintenance phase, the maintenance facet is really about being a giver in other words once you 've met these people once you 've built rapport, and you know what 's important to them, then you you build this long term relationship by Providing the care to them, the interest in them, in the areas that they're most interested in. Even even Zig Ziglar, back years ago, when he was alive and speaking, uh, I'm sure many of the listeners have heard this, maybe heard Zig say, but he said, "You can have anything in one in life if you just help enough other people get what they want." And and although Zig was a motivational speaker and he didn't speak about trust, that principle is true when you when you are a giver and when you're generous and I don't mean with money. It doesn't have to be a money issue. It's kindness. It's appreciation. It's when you show the, that, that this other individual is valuable, right? When you do that, you build a long-term relationship of trust. In fact, when you build it, uh, you're a m- lot more likely to be in a position that when you get to the fourth facet, which is the apology stage, you're going to be in a lot better position to have that apology accepted. We haven't gotten there yet, but the maintenance phase is about building A long term relationship. In business, it's about building repeat and referral. Business. So, if you sell a product of some kind, uh, it's about getting those people to come back and them recommending you to other people. Because instead of nobody likes an icky salesperson. So, if you if you're uh, if you happen to sell a product that people want, and you show that hey, you know what I'm more interested in is is your need instead of my need, then uh, the maintenance phase is, is just is a wonderful principle to understand. And there's a book uh, a series of books that were written by um, Bob Berg and John David Mann that, that really teach this principles as good as anybody. It's called the Go-Giver series, and these are are pretty easy-read books, but they're teaching that principle of, of being a giver instead of a uh, taker, right? And so I, I uh, always, I'll nearly always recommend those books as, as a good place to start if you're not familiar with the principle of being a giver and not a taker, and those are related more to to business, but they also associate to to life and and relationships, not just business relationships.
1: That's right. It reminds me of Adam Grant's work, you know, um, Givers and Takers. So a recent version of that one, but the Berg and Man Go Givers series of all relevant you know, Mark, a lot of people often ask me, how do I raise my visibility? How to increase my profile within the company which I, which I work? And I think part of it is what you just said on this maintenance phase. It's not so much about the grand opening or the rapport. It's about being that steady giver of information, that <laughs> steady giver of appreciation, that steady, you know, that's where people really get to know you. And I think your profile becomes the one you want it to be about. So, nicely said there i like that
2: yeah and i totally agree with that but at the same time i think it is important that we whenever possible to keep those facets in order because yeah. uh you can you can actually begin with maintenance but then at some point you got to go back to these beginning facets, right. which is the grand opening and the, and the rapport building so that you can enhance maintenance so that, you know, you want them to have an ongoing relationship. You want to have an ongoing relationship with them. And so they're all, they're all important. And ma- maintenance is something we have to do in, in all areas of our life right. to, to be able to function and, and build both business and personal relationships. It's, it's critically important.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. So we've been talking about four facets, the grand opening, the rapport and the maintenance. Now the fourth one that we need to talk about is apology. So what's the secret here? So you're right, we all mess up, whether we like to admit it or not. What's the secret (laughs) on giving an apology? How do I do this? Well,
2: yeah, we also call this facet the repair, the repair facet. So it's the apology and the repair. We use the apology and the repair facet. So there's really four proper steps to an apology. And realizing that you you need to go through those even if the other individual, or whether it even be a consumer, accept. They don't have to accept. You cannot force them to accept. But there's still four proper steps. And the first one is to admit that you actually did something wrong. Now, you know, we live in a world where we there are there are many people and individuals, businesses that are that are afraid to admit they did something wrong because of the repercussions that come with that. But the truth is, if you can't admit that you did something wrong, well you know, how in the world are you gonna get anybody to accept your sincerity, your transparency that you wanna correct it? So so the first the first step is to just admit You weren't right on this, and we could have done better, or our product hurt somebody. So that's the first thing. Then the second step is to uh, recognize how it harmed, and and then admit this is we recognize what we've done, and you know, and if it was me, here's how I would feel. So you actually, because we're dealing with people and individuals of emotion, it's it's better to then recognize how it likely harmed them, how you would have felt if it was you, and and how they might feel. So you try to at least help them understand that you recognize how it may have made them feel or how it harmed them in some way. Then the third thing you do is to to go to work repairing the damage. So how how do we what what can we do and what should we do to make it better, right? To to help people recover from this this blunder that we've made. And then Number four is we just admit and, and state that, hey, we're not going to do this again. So we've learned from it, and here's what we've learned. We're not going to do this again. We're gonna, not going to make the same mistake again. And you've got to be sincere with that. You've got to be honest with that. And You've got to be purposeful with that. So it's really those four steps. Recognize that you did something wrong. Admit that you, how it harmed somebody. And then and then, then uh, restitution, make it better in some way. And then uh, it, and then just tell people frankly that we, here's what we know we've we did, and we're not going to do it again. So we won't make this mistake again, and you can believe in us that we're going we're to make sure that we take steps to make sure that we don't ever do this again. So so those are the four steps. And then recognizing that even in the world we live in, that there are going to be people that or there are going to be circumstances that it either people won't forgive you, or it's going to take them time to forgive you. But that's on them, not on you. All you can do is the best you can do to Go through those four steps and and if you do that you've you've taken a large leap to rebuilding whatever trust and whatever level of trust that you have uh damaged, or you know you put a chink in your armor, how do we repair that Those four steps will help you get to recover to get back to okay. you know okay. at least head in the direction to get back to where you were and maybe move beyond that
1: What strikes me is I hear a lot of people say, number one, I made a mistake. And occasionally sure. I hear people say, I know how that harmed. I can see how that harmed or, you know, hurt sure. feelings or disappointed you or whatever else it is. What I don't see very often is people offering some form of restitution or even asking sure. the question, what can we do to make it better? And then followed by that, number four is a commitment that I'm not going to do this thing again. I may do something else, but I'm not going to do this thing again. Here's what I've learned from it. So, I, you know, regularly I think we get one and two, but I think three and four we're missing out on.
2: Sure, I agree. And, and I've even had companies say to me, but what if you've got somebody that's demanding more than we can reasonably give? Well, the answer to that is you give all that is truly reasonable, to repair the damage. There are going to be people that are unreasonable in their requests or demands. So I I don't suggest to people that they go beyond what's reasonable. I just suggest that they do something that is actually reasonable. If you were in that scenario, what would be fair? What would be equitable? What would be the right thing to do? When you do that, I believe that the majority of the world will recognize that you actually have done What you what you can reasonably do, and and those are people that wouldn't be reasonable, or those individuals out there that would would just want to. You know, we live in a funny world now because with social media, everybody has a voice, and so you're going to always have naysayers, and you're going to always, no matter what you do, you're going to have people that will want to criticize. But but in sincerity, if you do the four steps, and you know you've done everything you can do, and then you say what you will not the four, the four steps that you just mentioned. It goes a long, long way to help you uh, be in a position you need to, to to build the credibility, the trust that you need to have and reestablish that's it.
1: That's great. Um, Mark, perfect pause there. And I think that's right. You said earlier that people may not forgive you or it may take time for them to decide to forgive you. Um, but that's then on them. It's not on me. If I've done the four steps and I have done what I need to do, Uh, for apologizing and repairing. And that's a perfect point at which to take a break. So my guest today is Mark Given. The book that I'm fascinated by is called Trust-Based Leadership. There are three others, trust-based networking, trust-based selling, and trust-based success. And um, you can, well, lots more to hear from Mark. When we come back, I want to talk about this whole notion of trust in the team. And we'll talk a little bit about trust and productivity. We'll be right back.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are, at home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey,
2: Alexa. Hey, Google.
0: Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. That's Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. Now back to
1: Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Mark Given. You can learn more about Mark on his website, markgiven.com. The book we've been talking about is Trust-Based Leadership. And as you heard at the very beginning, Mark had built a successful retail business and along the way learned what it takes to do trust and has gone back to the research and now spends his time teaching people from all walks of life how to build and maintain trust. Four components, four facets, we should say, of trust. One is the grand opening, that first 50 second millisecond and the three step introduction, greeting. Then there's the building of rapport, learning more about somebody, so the family, the occupation, the recreation, and the dreams we talked about. Then there's the maintenance, which is kind of that steady, regular interaction. And as Mark says, it's giving more than it is taking and doing that in small degrees and interesting ways. And the last one is the apology. And again, there's four steps to the apology, which I found fascinating. Okay, Mark, everybody I'm talking to is interested in building trust in their teams, So this is, I get this all the time. It'll be a newly formed team or a newly reformed team where we've got five people from before and we've added three new people and some version of that. And they want to do this really quickly, usually in a couple of hours, if I'm lucky. So to build trust in that team, what's your advice? What needs to happen to make this team trust each other enough to have substantive conversations?
2: Sure, I I spend uh, uh, a s- significant amount of time trying to help leaders understand that there is a difference. And in my mind, and the way that my philosophy and the way I teach is that there's a there is a distinct difference between managing and leading. Managers mm-hmm. manage tasks; they get things done. That's that's what their role is. A leader is in place to inspire people to produce at their highest level. So. Let's go to your team concept and and it really is difficult when you have a crunch time we're under duress, but the reality of it is if if we're only task oriented uh, for the most part, people can get the job done, but they uh they're not going to celebrate the same as if they are have an emotional connection to each other, a a relationship with each other. In other words, we're all in this together. So if you're only managing tasks, then let's go get it done and let's get the job done. But if you want to build a team that that just explodes with uh possibilities and uh creativity then you build it really around inspiring people to be their best and the way you do that is to understand that you build trust by building relationships by understanding the other people so then it goes back to i mean certainly in a in a team situation you may have all all three of the four hopefully we don't have the apology to begin with right but you you might have three of the four, but, but at least you're trying to, uh, the rapport stage can be critical. How do we build this, these levels of trust so that we can inspire people to accomplish and, and in the amount of time that we have and to get the task done? Um, there's an old saying that uh, I saw one time that said, you never know when a moment, let me say it right, you never, kn- you never know when a moment and a few sincere words can have an impact on a life. When you have those sincere words, those um, uh those words that leaders say not just managers that that drive people to accomplish, but when managers connect, they inspire. So I believe that to build the most successful, productive, inspirational teams, you actually build it based on the connection of uh, understanding others and knowing them better, what drives them to succeed, not just what is their talent. So I I hope that answers your question, but I think it's more of a we've got to find a way to connect so that we can work together and we feel this need to do it together instead of let's just get it done. When we don't like each other, we don't trust each other, it's going to limit our success.
1: Yeah. What I find is if there isn't enough trust in the team, then they actually never really had the hard conversations. And if they never have the really hard conversations, then they're not really committed to the results. And they're not going to help each other out in the way that you really look like the um, whole is greater than the sum of the parts, which I wouldn't think everybody's looking yeah. at. But what I find in way too many teams is they spend the bulk of their time sharing facts with each other. and That's, that's all they true. Do. I agree. And they don't actually, and in fact, sharing facts, I don't really need to do a whole lot of rapport building or repair, for that matter. All I need to do is just share my facts the best I know. And that is not trust. I can completely trust that your facts are accurate, but not trust you one bit. Sure. So um, sure. it it's um, that difference. I think you're right in saying moving from the task orientation to what information do we need to know so everybody does what they need to do into that. Sure, How and I'm not we...
2: talking about a touchy-feely yeah. thing. You know, I don't yeah. mean it that way. I just mean a where we have a trusted relationship. So, you know, a trusted relationship can be a romantic relationship, but it doesn't have to be. It can be we trust each other's work. We trust each other's, that if you say this, I can trust that it's in the best interest of what we're trying to accomplish here. You know, there's no manipulation in there. There's no politics in there. It's, it's actually, we really are in this together. And I think you get that when you have deeper levels of of trust within the team. And when you don't have that, then, uh, you you know, you can maybe get a job done, but it's not even as good as it possibly could have been, not even close to what it could have been.
1: Now, do you have recommendations or favorite techniques you use with teams to help them build this level of rapport with each other?
2: Well... um, that's a good question <laughs> uh, so so much of that, I think comes from those kind, transparent conversations I, I guess the best way not not to not in any way, not answer your question, but it kind of depends on how much time we have to accomplish the task, right? Because when we're building a team and, and we've got to get the job done quick, then the way we would do it would be a little bit different than if we um, have a little bit more time to get it done so that we can actually uh, get to know each other a, a little bit more, not, not just using the Ford concept, but just getting to know each other. So I, I don't think I'm going to do a good job of answering that question specifically because I think there would be some factors in here that would it might vary based on how much time do we really have mm-hmm. to, get, to get this thing done, right, as a team. Right. So if they're thrusting this team together, it, it might make a difference in the techniques that would be used as to how we build some trust. You know, okay. icebreakers don't work when you don't have much time to – when you have no time to do an icebreaker. So. All right.
1: Yeah, well, And I. but I think that gives you the results you're looking for. So I guess I believe that if this is just a task, we're all going to get done, we're all going to pitch in, it's a crisis, we're going to get through the crisis, and we've got, let's say, 24, 48 hours to get it done, then everybody's going to give a pass, probably, on trust for the most part. The ones that I'm interested in, though, are newly formed teams where we're going to be working together for at least the next 12 to 18 months. And it's how do we now build the level of trust in that environment where we're inspiring each other and willing to sure. listen to each other. It's That's the you part
2: that makes the difference. So to now me. I can answer that question. Okay. <laughs> um, there, my first book, uh, and it turned into being an Amazon number one best selling book, and it was, really wasn't even about team building, but it was called Finding My Why Ernie's Journey, A Tale for Seekers. And I co wrote okay. that book with a, a wonderful storyteller named Don Greeson. And what we were really trying to write about was not leaving uh, this life that we're in with regrets. I think that there have been a number of books now. That have written that have been written some very notable, much more notable than mine probably ever will be, but the the point behind it was understanding the why, so let's go back to your your um, uh, you know your thought your question now, which is building a team, and we have more time to do it. If you understand why somebody really wants to to work on this team, why they want to get this particular thing done that is important. Um, this well, Let's call it a task. When you understand everybody's why, that's when you get to the level of trust because you understand each other better. So why are they on the team? Why is it important to them? And we, when we understand that, then it comes back to it. So we can be very different people, but now we can build a team based on Purpose, and when we have that that common purpose, you know, the why this is this is important to each of us and we understand our roles in that that's when we build a successful team that that just uh, the dream teams we seek right and right. and finding the why is critically important you know not not just their their own why purpose but then you know why is this important to the company why is this, this important to the team why is this important to the world and then we can go to work doing that thing and we build this this uh, foundation of trust where we're really in this together and we can accomplish some really cool things
1: you know what's really—I love how you said that. It's the and the book is called "Finding My Why." You can find it on Mark's um, website at markgiven.com. But this notion of finding the why, articulating for each other why I'm on this team, why this is worth my spending my time on, why I think it matters to the company, why I want to get this done, um, why this is important to me. And it doesn't have to be the grand purpose of my life. It just has to be why this thing right now is important to me. Right um, it reminds yeah. me of Adam Kahane's C- work, who I just adore. And he talks about how do you get people who fundamentally hate each other to agree to work together. And this principle starts with the exact same thing. He says, we may completely disagree on everything, but so long as we can agree that there's a problem worth solving, then we can find a way to work together.
2: (laughs) Yeah, totally agree. That's okay. That's a why, right? There's a problem. That's so it So yes. we need to get to work on this.
1: That's right. That's absolutely. I love that one. That's great. So, you know, understanding why we're here now. Why am I here? Why are you now here now? Um, and getting people to talk about that, to articulate it. I've certainly seen it on teams when I get people to in a team to say, what's important about what this team accomplishes to you? And why is it worth your spending your time on it? And when you go around the room and get people to articulate that, you find out pretty quickly, oh, geez, they're all sort of on the page that I can work with. That makes a lot of sense to me. All right. I want to shift gears and talk about a different thing. So in the current moment in time, there is a lot of change and a lot of chaos and a lot of rolling leadership, people coming in and out and changing seats and moving around. And while that creates great opportunities in many cases, it also creates a good business. Bit of anxiety for other people in um, at the moment in time, and I find that trust starts to erode at this point. What's your experience? What do you see, and what advice do you have?
2: Well, we live in a in a in a interesting world now, where um, you know everybody's a media source, and so uh, it is it is a time now that we have to have enough self confidence uh, and enough. Uh, understanding of our own purpose that uh, we can get out there and and try to connect with people and the and the right kind of people. So, I, here's what I would say, you know, we what do you really want out of life? I mean, if you want to to live a life of trust and be trusted, um then then you can't You can't listen to everything that's being said about other people. You gotta really get out there or even other companies. You gotta get out there and see for yourself. We gotta do some study and some research to understand who we're dealing with and are they the kind of people or the kind of organizations we want to deal with and, um, and understand that the, you know, the world sometimes can be a little bit negative, And it's, it's hard to have trust when, when you believe everything that's being said. So th- there are a lot of good people out there. You know, there's a lot more good than bad. We just hear about the bad. So I hope I've answered that question. I think we just live in an interesting world where uh, negative is thrown out, you know, just abundantly. And uh, but there's a lot of good in the world and there's a lot of business a lot of companies a lot of organizations a lot of people we really can trust and we just need to to not always listen to the hype and go find out what's really true
1: and i like that i mean i that's my philosophy i have decided that i'm going to focus on what's good and not necessarily what's bad i feel better about it and if i get blindsided i'll live with that one along the way i just my personal philosophy rather go that way um but then, so that would apply then when I'm in an organization and my senior leadership, so someone who's not immediately accessible to me, but who's two, three, four steps away from me, is someone I don't particularly know very well. And there will be lots of rumors circulating about that person. So it would be important to suspend my judgment a bit and go and see, get wait to gather the information and not listen to all the negative rumors. Is that sort of what you're saying here?
2: I uh, I. Totally agree, sometime long, long ago, when I was young i i in a in a history class um, prob- I was probably in middle school, and my teacher said something that i 've always remembered and i and i don't I hope I can quote this properly, but <laughs> my my teacher said that Abraham Lincoln was quoted as saying something about a general, an individual, that he just, there was just so much negative being said about him, maybe things were not going well. And and Abraham Lincoln supposedly said, uh, I don't like that person very much. I need to get to know them better. And <laughs> I thought, that what a wonderful principle. In other words, maybe I formed a, an incorrect opinion based on what other people have said, or maybe maybe I'm even wrong in my my own cognitive bias here, but if Abraham was right on that, and if that is actually what he said, then I've always accepted that as a as a as a quote that I would that I've wanted to embrace. I, I don't. If there's somebody out there, I just think I don't like that person very much. Well, why is it that I don't like them? Is it is it really a, an opinion I have formed on my own, or is it because I've heard other things, or I just am not you know? I, and so. I think Abraham was saying, we really need to get to know people better before we form an opinion and say, I really don't like them. So that's really what trust is about, is understanding that we, uh, we need to give people an opportunity to prove whether they're, they're trustworthy or not, and not just take somebody else's word for it. Because the world will tell us all kinds of stuff that isn't true.
1: Yeah, fascinating. And to put that together with your opening thing about this first 50 milliseconds where our impressions are yeah. formed. And that says an awful <laughs> lot about what we need to do. All right. I have a, a one minute question, Mark. One minute only. You bet. Okay. Productivity. I got asked this question the other day, and I think it's a fascinating question. Do you believe that trust actually increases productivity?
2: Yes. Both, both from the standpoint as the, uh, as the giver and the receiver. I believe that if you believe you're trusted, you're going to perform at a high level. If you're associating with people that you believe trust you, you're going to work harder. I also believe that if you're giving somebody uh, the opportunity to serve in some way and you trust in them, I believe that they will work hard to prove that they are trustworthy. So I totally believe that trust improves productivity you know, on both that- sides.
1: That's fascinating. So if I believe that I'm trusted or I've been, um, then I'm going to perform better and I'm going to try to prove that I am trustworthy. And if I find that people have uh, that um, I'm working with people where there's trust, then that raises my game. I also want to improve my productivity. Okay. Excellent. Mark makes a ton of sense to me. I think, um, I don't think we talk nearly enough about this whole topic of trust. I think we need to say more and more and more, and we need to talk to people about, I think we need to ask ourselves, why do I trust that person? Why have I decided to grant trust to that person, I and mean, perhaps not to that person? What is it that's driving that judgment? Um, sometimes I think you find that it's a, you know, concrete thing. And sometimes I think you find that it's just this opinion or that you heard or some rumor. So this notion of having some under, greater understanding of what we're doing to build the trust, I think is fascinating. And I love your four facets. The notion that there's a grand opening, my first impression in milliseconds, there's the building of rapport where I'm asking questions and learning more about people, and then there's the maintenance in ways in which I keep um being a giver, more of a giver than a taker. And then this final thing is the notion of the apology. We get it wrong sometimes, and what do we do about that to make it better? So my guest today, Mark Given. Mark is the author of the Trust-Based Philosophy book series, and the book I'm particularly fascinated with is Trust-Based Leadership. So, Mark, thank you for being a guest today.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
1: Absolutely great fun. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us
0: today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.